that space to be her uncompromising self. Hidden figures. I feel like there was a mismatch in the cover to the content. Women uplifting women, yeah! Welcome to Literary Connections, where friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm Melissa Hansen, craving some sodium chloride and some EVOO. <laughs> and I'm James Earl. And for the first time in my life, I was worried that the dog might die in Milan, Italy. Oh, God. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it doesn't, thank, yeah, God. thank God. And this month, we're reading Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Yeah, usually I am completely unaffected by dogs in stories, and everybody's always crying when dogs die in Marley and Me or Homeward Bound and whatever. And... This was the first time I caught myself being like, oh, 630 can't die. Yeah. That's not happening. Well, also, because I was a little bit worried. I was like, oh, we're going to probably get like this whole woman's life story. And so 630 is going to have to die. 630 is not going to live that much longer. Yeah. But thankfully, the story is actually very contained. She only has her TV show for like two seasons. Yeah. 630 forever. It's 630. <laughs> okay. Obviously, I've given us a, a preview that we were going to have spoilers. But in the interest of even more spoilers, I'm going to be giving our 60-second summary um, of the book in case you haven't read it and you want to keep listening for some reason. But again, we always recommend that you go read it and then come back and listen. Okay. I'll count you in for the, the 60 second summary. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Started in three, two, one. So our main protagonist is a woman named Elizabeth Zott and she wants to be a chemist. Um, unfortunately, academia is a piece of shit run by asshole men. And so she is forced out um, physically. She joins a research institution where she's trying to make some uh, scientific breakthroughs that she's like very innovative and she's very smart. And she um, ends up meeting one of the biggest scientific stars of his day, this guy named Calvin Evans. They fall in love. There's a lot of complications where he's like, let's get married. Maybe you change your last name. And she's like, no, I want to be a scientist writing on nobody's coattails. But they love each other a lot. They get a beautiful dog named 630. And then Calvin dies, leaving Elizabeth Zott alone, pregnant with his child, who she ends up mating Mad Zott or Madeline. She's looking for a job in order to afford the lifestyle of her and her daughter. And so she ends up being a TV cooking personality, teaching housewives how to do chemistry and believe in themselves. Well done. And that is where the story goes. Is then she is on the television show and how she changes the lives of the people near to her and far away from her who hear her message. Fantastic. That was great. In first try. Yeah. There's also like obviously a bunch of mysteries about like Calvin's mysterious past and things like that too. Yeah. And they, they were solved in unexpected ways too. Mm -hmm. I guess there are some things that you can intuit and you end up being validated with that intuition. But the actual like mechanisms by which those mysteries are confirmed is uh, is different than you'd expect. So first question that I have is, do you believe in Elizabeth Zott and Calvin Evans' love? Oh, absolutely. Okay, me too. Me too. I believe in their love. I do think it is, though, one of those relationships that might not have survived if he had lived. Mm, interesting. I felt like they were showing him grow. I mean, yeah, he had his little secrets and everything like that, but he seemed like he was committed to a process of evolving and changing as he needed to for the most part. The things that I would be concerned about is, and it was all from his own childhood trauma where he's like, everyone who I've ever loved has died in a tragic accident. Mm -hmm. And so I need to save people. I think that he had a very strong, like, white knight complex. Yeah, a messiah complex, yeah. Right. He also had, like, a lot of power as, like, the premier researcher at the Hastings Research Institute. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think would have actually broken them up is her finding out 
that he's the reason that her research gets funded. Yeah. They could probably overcome like a lot of things, but I think if she had found that out while he was alive, that actually could have been really bad for them. Right. And she felt really validated that her research was going forward and that it, that she did it on her own and everything like that. But I, mm-hmm. it's, it's really hard for me to read those sections and think, like, how could he have done it without interfering? Because it looked like her stuff was going to get shut down unless he interfered. And if you genuinely believe in that research and you genuinely believe in your wife, like, obviously he should have been honest with it. But that would make her feel less validated. It's one of those that's just like, yeah, he has no real right path to doing that. Right. And I think that to me is like the key thing with like Elizabeth Zott's character that is interesting to me is she never actually compromises. Yeah. And I think that is why she potentially would have broken up with Calvin over it is because of how she handled the TV show and literally did not kowtow to a single request. (laughs) Yeah. Even though she like deeply appreciated her producer and she was getting like good advice from Harriet, her neighbor. Yeah. She was just like, no, I disagree. I'm not doing that. And I think that is an interesting way. It's very lean in Mm -hmm. way of like dealing with a power struggle versus the more common place at the time is like, oh, the woman is the neck. She can turn the head no matter what direction. That's from my Big Fat Greek wedding. (laughs) That's good. I mean, I think part of where Elizabeth Zott needs to grow is to like understand that people have her back and she does, right? Like she is completely uncompromising. Mm -hmm. That said, she does do the show. Like she did the show, even though she didn't want to do the show. And that was partly because she recognized that like, okay, this person has my back. I can show up and they'll protect me in whatever way. And so like, that is a place where she needed to grow and does in some moments. And so it's possible that with Calvin, like she could have grown into that. Oh, yeah. On the topic of the producer, though, he was one of my favorite characters in it. I like how he's just like a mediocre dude in a position of power. He like knows that he's in over his head. Mm -hmm. He's not very good at his job and is just like showing up to work anyway and (laughs) trying to do it. And I think that is like across the board is his life because also like he does the same thing for his daughter. Right. He just shows up for his daughter. He's like, yes, you're biologically not my child because my wife cheated on me and then abandoned the two of us. Right. But I am going to make you lunches even if sometimes I accidentally put in staplers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I am showing up. Right. I'm not the best dad, but I will show up and do what I can. Yes. Yeah. No, I really liked that as a character. I like it as like, I want to see more of that in books of just like somebody who knows that they're not the best at something, but that it's an important role and that they want to be there for it and that they show up anyway and they just bring their full selves to that job of father or producer or whatever. Yeah, and I didn't see him and Harriet getting together. No, no, at no point. And then once it started, I was like, oh, I, I'm so happy for this. Yeah, yeah, I just thought it was going to be friendship. Good character, though. There are places in this book where we can definitely pass the Bechdel test. Mm -hmm. But like when it comes to like Elizabeth Zott's success, because she's going into two different male dominated environments, one being like research and academia, the other being like television and media, you do need allies. You do need a little bit of like hidden figures. There's a guy in charge who like is like, wait, no, I have responsibility to take down some of the shit in order to make room for you. Yeah. And it's just interesting. She finds two men in two different places that take a different approach to that and their responsibility there. Yeah. I mean, you could make the argument that she finds three 
man allies. One is Calvin. The other is Walter, the producer. And the third is her doctor slash rowing coach, Dr. Mason. And so, yes, they all take a different approach to allyship. But, yes, there is a bit of that hidden figures, the necessity of finding those people who are willing to carve out the space and, like, hold that space for her to be her uncompromising self. One part of their relationship, Calvin and Elizabeth Zott's relationship, I also find it hard to call her anything other than Elizabeth Zott. I know, full name. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's part of it, right? It's like she can't be Miss Zott or Mrs. Zott. Like, she can't be defined by those roles, so it, it always has to be the full Elizabeth Zott. One thing with her relationship with Calvin Evans that I was a little bit concerned about at first was how forcefully he pushed rowing onto her. And that she was, like, not that into it, but she was doing it anyway. Mm -hmm. But the more I was reading it, the more I was, like, kind of okay with that. Because, like, the metaphor of rowing, I think, is one of, like, we all have to be collaborating. We all have to be on the same page. And so the idea that, like, he was bringing her into that world in the same way that she was bringing him into certain worlds and, like, certain ideologies... Right, like her not wanting to get married, not wanting to have, and like her like bringing him into those things and like getting them on the same page, like that's the way that rowing functions narratively in this entire plotline, is like you can be a woman, you can be small, you can be big, but like the important thing is that everybody's rowing to the same beat. So like him asking her to join him on that beat. And uh, making that a centerpiece of their relationship. Like, I think the metaphor held up throughout the novel. Yeah, I feel like they they really milked that rowing metaphor for as much as it was worth. The all working together was obviously, like, really impactful. Like, that was a huge part of the end of the story. It turns out that Calvin had a secret mother the entire time who was rich. <laughs> and Elizabeth Zod is like, do you want to come back and meet the family? And she talks about, like, biological family, but also found family. And so obviously that's a huge part of it because the book starts out with both like Elizabeth Zott and Calvin Evans being like antisocial people who find each other. Yeah. I also really like the part of the rowing metaphor where it was like, you can't look ahead of you. You can only look behind you and you have to trust that you're going the right way and being given the right direction. Yeah. And I think that is also a really interesting thing because there is this idea of like faith that comes through the book as well. Right. That then folds into the rowing metaphor as well. Yeah. And the role of the past in the book generally mm-hmm. of people moving forward while maintaining a, a recognition of where they came from and what things they're trying to overcome. Mm-hmm. So it was a well done extent. Yeah. Maybe overdone, but, but generally well done and well developed metaphor that went through the whole thing and like her recommending it to her audience as part of that, like you can do hard things mm-hmm. mentality. Mm-hmm. Like I, I really like the way that she recommended that exercise because most of the time when exercises get recommended to you, it's like, it's either fun or like, you, what doesn't even hurt or it'll be fine. And that's just being like, it's going to kill you. Like, it's going to just like destroy your body, but it'll work. Well, I think also it's like, you are already strong. I think that is like also came through and this yeah. like Dr. Mason in general was like a fantastic character. He's like upset about all the women joining the running club. And the reason that he's upset is not because they're women, but because he's been trying to get his wife to do it for years. And he's like, yeah. I am an OBGYN. Women suffer through labor. They can absolutely right. do rowing. <laughs> get the yeah, work through the pain. Yeah. <laughs> they, they are stronger than men by all means. And I can't yeah. believe she's listening to you and not me. Yeah. There's something really charismatic about that character generally about how it's just like no nonsense. It's just like cut through whatever 
crazy noise there is and just just row <laughs> like this ideology just row looking at the past there was also the metaphor of the family tree which was very interesting also a terrible project i liked when harry was like this is a terrible project <laughs> Yeah, the the priest also, when he was dealing with the project, and he's like, oh, that's a fun project. And then he thought about it for a second. He's like, this is a terrible project. Yeah. Yeah, that priest, I like how he held no beliefs strongly. Mm-hmm. It's just like a fun character, especially to give that character the profession of priest. Because every time he held any position in the novel, he could then be talked out of it. Even like the belief in God. He like holds this position and then allows himself to hear... An opposing position, and he goes, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And he just is, like, modeling this behavior of changing one's mind when given new information. So, like, that's a fun project. It's a terrible project when you think about it for a second. Well, that's why, like, Elizabeth Zott, she has the number two pencil with her at all times. She's like, real scientists aren't afraid of erasing. Make mistakes. Yeah, yeah, we erase. And then she, like, looks at the reporter who's writing in pen, and she's like, yeah. Someone's confident. Yeah, this this book was really great with, like, side characters that stick with you. Because, like, the reporter also sticks with you. So you've got the priest, the reporter. Yeah, I think that's what's interesting to me. And what's also hard to me is, like, it makes sense that, obviously, a lot of the characters end up being male. Like, the supporting professional characters end up being male because that's the time that we're in. And so it's almost like they're able to be in more interesting careers yeah. than the women. And that's, like, part of what the book is pushing for it. But we we have, like, two female characters other than Elizabeth Sott and her daughter. We have her neighbor, Harriet, who is a harried housewife whose husband is terrible and abusive. And then we have Miss Frask, who is originally in human resources at the Hastings Research Institute, and then proceeds to, like, destroy Elizabeth when she finds out Elizabeth is pregnant out of wedlock. And it seems mostly she does it because of personal and professional jealousy around like Elizabeth does whatever the hell she wants. And my boyfriend thinks that she's super hot. And so I'm going to take her down. And then throughout the novel goes back to attempt to redeem herself from like that woman on woman crime. Yeah. The internalized misogyny that she feels and that like competition that patriarchy creates among the two women And then she realizes in, like, the scene in the bathroom and some other ones that the patriarchy is literally never going to validate her. That, like, if she's constantly going to seek validation from the men at Hastings or whoever, that is never going to come regardless of how hard she works or how many other women she throws under the bus or how she, like, adopts the ideologies that they're promoting about femininity and, and so on. Like, she could do all of those things, but... She's never going to be validated by them, and so she ultimately turns on them and becomes Elizabeth's ally and tries to, like, yeah, that was a really great redemption arc that she had and that realization. Yeah. Becoming the head of HR and boss lady who runs the foundation can bulldoze everything. Yeah, and, like, exposes all the secrets. Yeah. I've been listening to the podcast Normal Gossip. Have you listened to it? No, tell me. Part of it is... They are reframing gossip as, and I think this is important, is it's a way for um, people of less privilege and less power to actually take power away from dominant classes because you're giving information to each other that will allow you to be successful, Mm. potentially, is like one way to think about it. It might be one way to think about some types of gossip. (laughs) 
But I think that there's an element of that that I, I would say here is that like when Miss Frask and Elizabeth Zott like have a conversation in the bathroom, they're able to be like, oh, wait, no, we've both been sexually violated by men. Yeah. There's an exchanging of information where like Miss Frask is also to be like, I don't give a shit. I know that you and Calvin Evans were not married, but someone needs to have his research and you deserve it more than anyone who's here. Like you should take his boxes. Mm -hmm. There is an element of like, when minority voices are able to stick together and give each other information, they're able to take on more power. And I think that was like a good display of like the first element, like Miss Frask had to learn her lesson in order to be able to then be women together to take down the man. Right. And like saying how much money you make and like sharing salary information and these kinds of things yeah, to be able totally. to, to understand that. No, I 100% agree with that. But like reframing the whole conversation around gossip as a high school teacher, like I see the damage that gossip can do. And like it's not always just like gossip is not just something that happens in communities without power, like gossip that outs people, gossip that... Gossip is also a form of bullying when it comes from other sources. Totally, totally, totally. I think it's more so just like when men gossip, there's an idea of like, oh, well, you're back channeling at work or mm. um, right. journalism. <laughs> right. The reporter for Time Magazine, like the, the main lead reporter was like, I cannot dig up like dirt on this woman. She is a woman of integrity and I want to focus it on what is important, which is her science as a chemist. And then um, Time Magazine was like, this is literally, you've talked about elephants in this. It's like not what we want. And then they they hired someone to just like pull all the juice out of the story. Yeah. That is gossip, but we call it journalism. Yeah, that's true. The, when we're talking about like those particular types of discourse and then you gender one, like you, it's a gendered thing, right? Like when the men do it, it's back channeling. When the women do it, it's gossip. And so it takes on this reality. Yes. But I also, I do want to like emphasize, and I think this comes up in the book too, is like you are entitled to privacy. Yeah. Like that comes across like very clearly between the conversation with Mad and what's the pastor's name? Wakely. Right. Because the, it's also gossip when the men talk about how Calvin and, and Elizabeth are not married and like what they get up to and so on. Like, that's also gossip, and it's it works in a pernicious way. Do you think that Elizabeth leaving TV to go back to research is the right decision? I do. I do. And I don't know if I'm right about this. This is a belief weekly held, but I was touched by her, like, viewing herself through her daughter's eyes, in particular, like, the way her daughter was impacted by the discourse about her and like crying and saying like no my mom's a scientist and her just being like this isn't even about me like she could love this thing but it's also about how she's perceived and that there's a necessity in her being validated by those structures and doing the real research on abiogenesis and pursuing that path and just like actually inhabiting the position of scientist and making sure that everybody around her recognizes that she inhabits that position. And it's for Mad and it's for everybody else. So I, I'm, I'm cool with it. I, I liked it. <laughs> Did you fall on a different side of this? I mean, part of it is like, I think academia and all research is like a horribly corrupt <laughs> organization. Yeah. The ending where she ends up being like the head of research at Hastings feels very satisfying, but she quit without thinking she'd get that position. She thought that she would get a bunch of offers when she quit her TV show and she didn't. Right. What concerns me a little bit with Elizabeth Zott going back to research is she was able to actually have a lot broader impact through her television show. Mm. 
right? Like you see yeah. all these stories of like this woman became a doctor because of Elizabeth Zott. Yeah, yeah. She was like actually like encouraging, like Harriet left her husband. Yeah. All of these women across the country took up rowing. There was an ability to have immense impact by having her television show more than potentially. I mean, I, a biogenesis is like important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Research. But it's, it's like, it's, it's a different sort of thing. Both ways are actually like giving back. Yeah. Oh, biogenesis and like her being a researcher feels more selfish to me to a certain extent, which I realize judging a woman for being selfish is like <laughs> a problem in itself. Cause like you wouldn't say this about a man, right. but I do think that she was able to break so much ground more broadly in a more mainstream way through a television show versus like research. Yeah. And maybe it would be a little too pat of a, like a feminist ending where then she becomes the director of research and then she hires only female research associates and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But I was just like, really, I thought that her show was like a feminist awakening for the country. It was the way it was shown. Yeah. It's the way it was characterized for sure. I think she should have left the show at the end. I, I'm going to maintain that position, but that the show was a necessary step. Like, if she had just stayed a scientist, her impact obviously wouldn't have been as broad. But her, like, empowering and then walking away, it's the same as, like, somebody on YouTube or something like this or a podcast like ours getting famous by doing the hits first and, like, just, like, playing into the the stereotypes that people have about, like, like we're only going to do podcasts on The Great Gatsby and uh, Pride and Prejudice and uh, the books that people actually read in schools and then, like, get a foothold so that we could do Bernadette Evaristo or Toni Morrison. I don't know, like, ones where we could then lift up some lesser-known voices. So she needs to get the audience first, and then she can leverage that public power to do more meaningful things. So, like... I totally agree that like her doing this was empowering and like was this re feminist revolution, but like the direction that feminist revolution has to take after that is to like actually do the serious thing. Like it can't just be in the medium of the cooking show, which is already gendered female. But I guess my question is why not? Right? Like I think that's the other thing about like Elizabeth Zott's character. And I, I think it's of the time. It was interesting when I was reading Goodreads reviews of the book, they're all like, it's like if a 21st century feminist went back to the 1950s with her opinions. I was like, no, it's not. No. <laughs> like Elizabeth Zott is not like a 2023 feminist. No, she's not like an intersectional. She's not no. talking about, yeah. She's like fighting the fight against blue and pink. Yeah. She's like fighting the fight about the way to be a woman in some ways is like to become a professional. You're right, right. Yeah, this is like firmly second wave. Right, which I think that's why I liked the TV show is because there was such a strong element to the TV show that was like, women, you can do hard things. Mm -hmm. And that what you do is a hard thing. Yeah. You have a job and people aren't taking your job seriously. I take you seriously and you should take yourself seriously. Yeah. And that's a Gen X feminist position that like toughness should be valued mm -hmm. even more than things like fairness, which I feel like is more of a hallmark of more modern feminism that like fairness, justice is a more important thing than like just toughen it out. But hers was a tough it out. Right. Which I think is like appropriate. Yeah. It's, it's part of the process. Yeah. It's part of the process. And I think it's necessary, especially at that stage, yeah. as we can see, like with the male influences and power that she has to experience. I think there's just like a part of me that's like right now this like, 
I don't know what wave of feminism we're on fourth. <laughs> that I'm just like, women can have it all, but that's like having a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like having an Instagram and a podcast and you're an amazing researcher yeah, yeah. and you're a mother. It's everything, right. but that's also like an absolutely unfair expectation. Right. Why can't you just be a mother and do abiogenesis research in her homemade lab in her kitchen and still do the show and empower women? Yeah. Which is why I hope that whatever is like next for her, there is like this element of empowering women. If I was going to like write it. That it's still public. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like she like makes a call out for like female grad students um, mm-hmm. to like support her research and stuff like that. Cause I feel like that would be cool. Yeah. And she's in a position where she could do that. And I got the sense that her public image wasn't going away. Like there was magazine articles about her. And so her just still being able to leverage the public image to continue to affect change. And maybe every once in a while drop in on a cooking show, you know, just to talk about abiogenesis. Maybe. Well, I also think it's interesting when you think about the media who is reporting on her, right? Like, so Life Magazine basically writes this yeah. article that at least, like, tears her down for all of her, like, bad, bad, I use yeah. bad in quotes, bad deeds of, like, being unmarried right. and living in sin, having a child out of wedlock and all that shit. Then the writer for time feels terrible because he's like, this is not the article that I wrote. So he writes a new article about women in the sciences and he shops it to every single scientific journal, which are all run by men. And they all say no. And then after it's rejected from all of these different scientific journals that do not, or magazines that do not want to publish it, um, Harriet, who is Elizabeth Zott's neighbor, is like, no, 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 no. Like, you've been submitting this to the wrong places. Like, where this needs to go into women's magazines. Women are going to care about this. They're going to uplift this. They're going to be inspired by this. Like, they are your audience to a certain extent. Um, And then she gets it published in Vogue, which is famously a fashion magazine. I think that to me is also really great. Maybe I'm, there's just a little part of me that's just like, women uplifting women, yeah! Why do we have to follow the male roads of success? Why does it to be taken seriously or to have power, you have to be published in a scientific journal, which yeah. are of notorious, terrible editorial yeah. choices, which then cause them all to have like chaos because they're like, I'm the editor. I get to decide what's in this magazine, even though if nothing in this reproduces. Sorry, I'll go on a rant about academia later. <laughs> but that's a really good point. I, I like that point that the paths to scientific success under patriarchy look a specific way. And if you just like reproduce those and replace the male scientists with female scientists that's not actually that's not actually progress and so like having these on new ways to build success or build scientific knowledge and like the path could very reasonably be through a cooking show and like come up with real interesting scientific learning and teaching and exchange of information like that that's a pathway that maybe is better than scientific journals that one person will read mm-hmm. I, I, okay i could buy that like i always underestimate how much power hashtags have <laughs> this is not a problem i have but, <laughs> <laughs> but how does this problem manifest in your life well i'm always just like because I, I think because i'm just like i'm not very active on social media yeah. and so when there's like everyone's like having a moment i'm like wait wait I think that a lot of people can get impacted and can organize through hashtags. Yeah. And like all of these sorts of movements. And I think that Elizabeth's TV show is an example of that too. Yeah. But we don't take it seriously because it seems frivolous and feminine. Yeah. On the topic of things that are coded feminine being frivolous and like existing are sort of the norm of paths to success is the cover of this book, which like screams 
romance novel or even, I mean, what I thought it was, I thought it was going to be a YA book. I thought it was going to be like a story of some people in their chemistry class falling in love or something um, with 13-year-old protagonists. And like this was not either of those things. The intimate scenes between her and Calvin Evans were not romance novel sex scenes. And though there is an adolescent character in Mad, it is not the focus of this novel. It is not a coming-of-age story. Elizabeth Zott is Elizabeth Zott from the beginning to the end. Like she doesn't go from like innocence to experience or anything like this that you would expect from a YA novel. So it is different than what we usually read. And I feel like there was a mismatch in the cover to the content. Because it seemed more literary fiction or like adult contemporary or something. Yeah. I have like a conflicting relationship with the cover. One part of me like likes the cover and the fact that you're making assumptions about someone based on what they look like. Don't judge a book by its cover, right? It's like you think that you're reading a book about like frivolous and feminine things, but it's actually like a very serious book. That's interesting. I love that take. That's good. That's a wisdom. But I think what is hard for me about that is I think ultimately I'm deciding the cover is not good. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Is because part of what a cover is supposed to do is to like kind of give you a little bit of like what kind of book you're expecting. And I think the reason that I care about, and I think I might have a slightly different opinion if this did not happen, three chapters in, there's a rape scene. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a cover that looks like that, which is like bright, cheery with a fancy lady, like wearing glasses with a pencil in her hair. Yeah. That to me was very, very jarring. And I think in reading the reviews of this book, a lot of people found that to be, they're like, I thought it was going to be this, but it ended up being something else. And I think I'm really glad that it ended up being something else. But I don't, I could see like a lot of people being like, wait a second. There's also, like, the way the story was told, like, that that's a really intense scene, and it happens really quickly. And the next really intense scene that you're warned about before it, it actually happens, where it's like, and Calvin Elvins was dead 37 minutes later, or whatever the, the number is. I had to, like, read that a few times. I was like, wait, what? Like, that, that's just, like, not where I thought this story was going. It just seemed like this was about that relationship, and then it, it ends up not... And then there's some scenes that like fit exactly with the tone. Like there's a whole chapter told from the dog's point of view where he like saves the life of the groundskeeper. The tone of the book shifted quite a bit from like being really serious and like pulling the tears from my eyes. And then it was just like a silly romp with 630 doing fun things. And then it was like girl power, 90s feminism, fist pumps. And yeah, I mean, it was like all over the place in that way, but it was still cohesive. Like I I thought it was was a very good book. I feel like she did a great job in editing it Mm -hmm. to pull all those pieces together and have it be a cohesive narrative, even though it has these tonal shifts that are really dramatic. Mm -hmm. was an impressive task, an impressive feat. Yeah, I felt very similarly because the book, the perspective changes constantly. Mm -hmm. So like there's a chapter from the dog's perspective or the kindergarten teacher's perspective. Everyone gets their perspective in. It never feels jarring it feels smooth it feels like she's building like a very rich world at all times and she also there are many chapters where she's going back and forth through time yes very smoothly when it shouldn't right. it shouldn't feel right. smooth because it's like she's going by decades yeah that's true like I, I was tempted to say that this has like a very clean linear narrative it does not like it, mm-hmm. it does not have a clean linear narrative it's jumping back and forth between time periods all over the place but it feels easy and, like, you usually get these kinds of linear narratives in romance and YA novels 
um, which is what we typically read, we don't usually get this like jumping back and forth between time periods and perspectives like this one, but it's still read as easy as these other books we read. I think it's because it was good. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was good, actually. Things read easy when they're either like Da Vinci Code, yeah. where it's like, wait, this is super fast paced. It's not trying my brain. Let's just keep going. Yeah. Or it's like really good. And you're like, oh, I want to keep building in this world. Yeah. And all the, the fun side characters just on that journey with Elizabeth Zett. Yeah. And I think there, there are like elements of the fantastical a little bit in it, too. Like Matt is like four years old. <laughs> I know, I know, and she's and she's reading like she's reading like college yeah, books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, even like the existence of Mad and her name as Mad. There's like a silliness to the book too. Like it mm-hmm. takes itself very seriously, and it also doesn't at all. With like six thirty being a dog and Mad, like that line that was like legally Mad. <laughs> how, how could this go wrong? was a really good line. Well, especially, like, I think there's the connotation of, like, a mad scientist. Yeah. And then there's something that's, like, poetic and beautiful about that. Yeah. I do want to loop back around to Calvin Evans' death. Yeah. And, like, 37 minutes later, he's going to die. Because, well, first of all, I think there's something interesting in the book of, like, multiple people blaming themselves for Calvin's death before he dies. Yeah. Like, his mother thinks that he's dead, and then he's not, um, because he's been taken to an orphanage, and then she finds out, like, he is alive and then goes there, but then it turns out he died in the orphanage, but he didn't. <laughs> right. There's a memorial before he's even dead. Yeah. There's something that's like very interesting about that, especially like, again, like with the metaphor around like looking backwards. But Elizabeth Zott blames herself for the death of Calvin Evans because... The leash. The leash. She's like, there's a leash law and it, and she... There's something interesting because the, the chapter or two before is when Calvin proposes to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's like, absolutely not. I am not marrying you. I'm not changing my name. I need to be my own person. Yeah. And he's like disappointed because he's like, all I want to do is like save you and be tied to you. And she's like, no. Mm-hmm. And then in the next chapter, she's feeling the same way, but about 030. 6.30. Sorry, I could 030. It's a movie. <laughs> 6.30. She's like, I love him so much that I I need him to be safe. I need to like add a tie to him to feel safe. And it's less about him feeling safe. It's more about me feeling safe. Leash, wedding ring, metaphor. I was like, oh, I love this. Yeah. And then I think there's something really interesting about then the leash being the reason trying to hold something closely is what ultimately destroys the thing that you wanted to hold close. So that's a really great point. I mean, there's one, the the point you made just about how we learn about his death before his death happens. And that's like true of Calvin Evans for the entire novel. And also... Yeah, the, the leash that, like, Elizabeth wants to follow the rules, but also she spends so much time trying to knock down the, like, artificial rules that hold her back. But then it's like, no, this rule we have to we have to follow, this, like, thing that's going to tether us to each other and, like, literally tether you to 630, and that ends up being the thing that drags him under. Also, how did the police not owe them, like, a million dollars for running over? Running him over, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. That, like, never gets brought up again. Everyone's like, oh, he died in a hit yeah. one, right? It's like, yes, the police ran him over. Everyone saw it. Yeah, yeah. Right, but also he didn't have any next of kin, so who's going to sue? Like, I think that's mm. part of the issue. I guess that's fair. She has no recourse because she had no claim to him because they were not tethered together by any contracts that are recognized by the state. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, should we look at some paper two questions? Let's do it. All right. So here's an IB question. The opening part is in quotations, and the the question in quotations is, why won't writers allow children simply to be children? Discuss the presentation and significance of children or the state of childhood in a work that you've studied. Oh, and then the final quote of this, in light of this complaint. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, in light of this complaint. So I feel like there's a few things to talk about with this one. One is the obvious child that is in the book, and that's Matt. The other is to talk about Elizabeth Zott's childhood or Calvin Evans' childhood Mm -hmm. and how neither of them have particularly childish childhoods. Mm -hmm. Like, Elizabeth is extremely serious. Her father is a, a snake oil salesman preacher. Her mother falls in line with it. Her brother commits suicide, who is like her only friend when she was a child. So she's like forced to grow up in these really meaningful ways really fast. And so she doesn't get to experience that childhood because of the like plot points surrounding that and the narrative devices surrounding that. Mm -hmm. Calvin obviously doesn't get to be a child because he's put into a boy's home right away without parents. Well, after his adoptive parents die and the adoptive aunt dies and then he's put into the boy's home. (laughs) Exactly. And so he, yeah, he doesn't get to really have a childhood either and he's becomes a scientist almost immediately. And then there's Mad, who acts like she's a 27-year-old grad student from the time she's three years old, it seems. Mm-hmm. So the children in this book are not children in any way. And why won't writers let children be children? I don't know. Do you think <laughs> that, like, we want to listen to tragic? I would read a very nice story where... Nothing bad happens ever. I mean, I do love the precocious child in books like when I read The Wrinkle in Time I loved Charles Wallace there's and I was like 10 years old reading these books and I still loved the idea of like a four-year-old that's super articulate or like Teddy in a J.D. Salinger story I don't know like we are just drawn to these things but yeah what books have we read that did childhood particularly well where like a child was actually a child I feel like Cerulean Sea did it really well. I mean, they still had to go through a lot of trauma, obviously, because they were like outcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Lucy was still pretty precocious. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Right. Like, Talia was 200 years old or something like that, but was an adolescent um, that like gnome that liked braining people. The one like child, child in that book that I can really remember. Well, I think like Lucy, yes, you had to accept that Lucy was a child for the whole book to make sense. Then there was also the Ware Pomeranian, who was really childish and sweet. Yeah, there is something about the precocious child that writers love, but also readers love. So I'm not sure that this is a complaint that I hear often. Well, I think what we can look at into the book because there is a complaint in the book by the kindergarten teacher of this. Yeah. Like, I need you all to, like, have your kids be, be kids. kids. Be kids is, like, I need you to fit in the constructs of society so we say why won't we let children be children same thing as like well boys will be boys yeah you need to fit into a box mm. so much of what we like turn to literature for is like it's often you're trying to find a kinship mm. and everyone to a certain extent feels like an outsider no one feels like they're in the inside that's like every single book that or movie or tv shows like about a popular girl is like she's actually super lonely on the inside mm-hmm. it's sometimes more lonely to be surrounded by people than to be by yourself yeah right it's always the same thing we all are like surrounded by that feeling and because this book was like at its core about the expectations that society has for certain groups of people 
Mad's narrative arc is the same as Elizabeth Zott's narrative arc, where she is told that she's not supposed to be this type of thing in the world, this like precocious, literate, whatever. And so she's trying to rebel against those standards that society has for her in the same way that her mother's trying to rebel against the standards that her society has for her. So for Mad not to be childish is actually like really narratively cohesive with the rest of the book. So that's why Mad can't be a child. It is, although I do wonder if in that time, or just even in general, I think, right, you tend to react to your parents and like want to be a little bit the opposite at some point. Mm-hmm. And I think there possibly could be an interesting, a more interesting story for Mad if she was more different than her mother. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think in many ways, she is a mini version of her parents. She's a scientist yeah, who is like very curious and asks a lot of questions, but doesn't have a desire to fit in. Mm-hmm. At the end, she doesn't really even have any friends other than her dog and a bunch of adults. Yeah, I would love to see a sequel where Mad is 15 and super into theology. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like applying that rigor that she has and that like precision that she has seems to to have but just like applying it to like exegesis of thomas aquinas or something yeah or, or even going to that next wave of feminism where it's like yeah all the women wore short skirts on star trek and it was not like for sexy reasons it was for empowerment reasons mm-hmm. it was like how dare you tell us what we can and cannot wear we will show as much of us as we want fuck you yeah yeah and then her mom being like, "How? Like that's not what it is. Like you should be respected for your brain." And it, like being right. like a wear forward. trousers. Yeah, wear trousers. Like, fuck trousers. Yeah, fuck yeah. trousers. <laughs> Mini skirts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would I would read that fan fiction. Mad fan fiction. Mad. Into other ways of dealing with this question with the children not allowed to be children is Calvin Evans' childhood because like part of this is like the state of childhood and. His state of childhood was basically like, I need to get out of childhood. I need to be autonomous. And like narrative arcs need that sort of escalation and change. And so like allowing a child to stay a child, it doesn't play well in narrative. Like you need to have that movement from innocence to experience that like. Well, it's also always just more satisfying when someone has overcome tragedy to a happy ending. Although with Calvin, he doesn't really get a happy ending. Well, yeah, that was something that, that was really touching about his death is the thoughts that he has as he's leaving where he's like, who would have thought that like I would have a life this good? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, I mean, he did make it and then dies. I mean, he yeah, he dies with the best dog and the best girlfriend and the best, well, research, not job. Yeah. And best rowing team. Yeah, yeah. rowing team and in a town where he can row. Mm-hmm. We also should talk a little bit more about Elizabeth's childhood because she is, as you were saying, like a response to her parents. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the decisions she makes is in response to her parents. Whereas Mad is just like a carbon copy, just like a mini me of Elizabeth Zott. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Zott like very intentionally does not want to follow in the path of her charismatic father. And so you, like she's afraid of her own charisma. Totally. And I think that is where, where I'm like, the, the way that you can argue to me that she shouldn't be on the television show is like, it is harming her in many ways to be like her father, to be a presenter, to like engage in that power that she knows she has from her parents. Mm-hmm. She has the power of both beauty and charisma that she doesn't want to have. Yeah. And she doesn't want to use. She wants to use the power of her brain. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also something that's really interesting 
about like how her life and reaction to her brother committing suicide because he's gay. Yeah. Because in both cases, she and her brother are outliers yeah. from modern society and are approached with like really horrible abuse because of that. And they pick different directions. Like she very much is like, I need to almost like lean into the abuse and keep going mm -hmm. and I'm going to make it. They never really quite like link the two of like how they handle like being marginalized by society and like the the way that they make it through. But they do touch on it a little bit when they talk about when they both jump off the cliff together, yeah. where he like dares her to jump off the cliff into the water. And then she does it, even though she can't swim. Right. And then he dives after her. He's like, what are you doing? You could like die. And then everyone's like, he did that because you couldn't swim. She's like, no, 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 he couldn't swim either. I know. That was such a touching moment when yeah. she says that. Like, the thing is, he couldn't swim either. But I think there's an element of, like, who saves who? And it does seem like their childhood. He was the older brother. Like, he was always there to save her, even at the expense of himself. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, like, there was no one there to save him. Yeah. Protect him from the father. Mm -hmm. And then she like learns from that. I know what it feels like to be saved and I can do that to myself because I've been given that gift to a certain extent. I don't think she links it that way. I'm linking it that way. Yeah, I think it's certainly in the narrative. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. Have we done it? I mean, we've, we've discussed a lot. It's a very rich book. There's a lot to discuss. The best part of this book that like we both acknowledge the beginning of this podcast is how great the dog is. <laughs> you know, it would be better. Yes. What would be better <laughs> than a dog? What's better than a dog, James? If the protagonist had an octopus as a pet. <laughs> I, I'm really glad that you're in your octopus era right now. <laughs> yeah. Ever since I read Other Minds. Anyway, I saw a post somewhere on the internet that was for people who like the House on the Cerulean Sea, and everybody was recommending a book called Remarkably Bright Creatures. I'm not sure that it's YA. I certainly don't think it's romance genre, but it might be fun to read another one of these types of books that is um, more literary fiction and just like good in the ways that uh, Lessons in Chemistry was just like a pretty good book. You up for that? Yeah, I'm up for like a good book, especially like a good book that has a great animal, whether it's a Wear Pomeranian or a beautiful octopus. Or a dog named 630. Exactly. Literary Connections is hosted by me, Melissa Hansen, and James Earl, and were produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Please join us next month when we'll be reading Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. See you next month. See you there. No, I mean, usually I'm just completely unaffected by the pets and the stories and everybody dies, the Marley and me and whatever. And I, did I say everybody dies? <laughs> usually, <laughs> let me restart that.